Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now on fixed income and really framing in a global macro strategy at Morgan Stanley is Matthew Hornbach, and he joins us on this day of election results, this day of plans for COVID, and this day of a jump condition in the market. Matt, let's go back to Vassar Economics, where you had to define a jump condition. Is this a jump condition? Tom, thanks for having me on. Um, This is clearly an important day uh, for the world. Um, You know, it's we still have some wood to chop, right? I mean, we still have to get the vaccine uh, further tested. It has to be distributed around the world. Uh, And so it's that we're still not out of the woods yet, but certainly a bright day for the globe. And I think you can see this playing out uh, very clearly in markets that you've just discussed. So, um, you know, we think that there is also an important underlying backdrop to all of this, Tom, which is the amount of central bank liquidity that is being pumped into the system on a monthly basis, and we expect to continue throughout the entirety of next year. So a tremendous day for the world, and I think next year looks looks to be a bright one. Matt, what does a bond market look like with a vaccine? Are we looking at a 1% 10-year? More? Lisa, we, you know, we do think that, that yields are going to be angled higher over the course of the coming year. Uh, you know, we have recently been very bearish on the Treasury market. It's a rare, rare day for me to be bearish on the Treasury market, but we have been bearish up until this point. We do think that there is good scope for the curve to steepen further. And clearly today is a day in which uh, you'll see the Treasury curve continue to move steeper. So um, we think a, a Treasury market with a vaccine is one where the Fed is going to slow play it for sure. That's going to prevent intermediate yields from rising too much. But the back end of the yield curve should be lifted higher, especially as break-even inflation rates continue to expand. So, Matt, here's the story for me. We know what the world looks like with a vaccine because we know what the world looks like without COVID-19. And Treasury yields didn't exactly get away from themselves back then either. And most people might make the argument this morning that looking out over the next several years, even with COVID-19 under control, trend growth could well still be lower. Inflation could well still below and rates, we might not see a recovery in Europe once again that justifies a rate hike. So, Matt, what would your response to that be? Why would a cycle, a recovery with a vaccine be any different to what we saw in the previous 10 years when we didn't even have COVID-19? Yeah, John, I think the answer here ultimately comes down to central bank monetary policy strategy. And what we've seen from these central banks is that they're willing to keep interest rates much lower for longer. I mean, we've been using that phrase for over a decade now, so why not continue to use it? But we do think that these new monetary policy strategies are going to end up weighing on the equilibrium level of long-term interest rates, the equilibrium level of the yield curve. Um, I mean, everything is going to be lower and flatter for longer. That doesn't mean that yields are going to stay low in perpetuity, but it does mean that the, the equilibrium levels are coming down, John. Do you assume then, Matt, that the previous peak on a 10-year yield of the previous cycle just won't be achieved again? I think it's going to be a long time before we see a three and a quarter percent 10-year yield, which, bear in mind, occurred really on the back of a communication faux pas, which is, in, in general terms, you know, whenever you see interest rates move 
higher very quickly to really unsustainable levels. It typically occurs on the back of a communications error, right? We saw that in 2013. We saw that at the end of 2018. So, I, you know, we think that central bankers have, have learned this lesson time and time again. They may have to learn it again, John, but I think for the time being, these new monetary policy frameworks are going to really try to anchor those rate expectations much lower than ever before. Matt, I want you to channel one Michael Wilson. You talk about frameworks. Does this equity market frame the forecast or the expectation for revenue growth and earnings growth? Well, Tom, we, we've been long-term bulls here on, on the equity market. Mike Wilson, I'm sure, would, would be the first to admit that you know when it comes to these recent corrections, which he's called absolutely correctly, um, you know, it does suggest that, you know, his longer term view, which is very bullish, is very, very likely going to play out, especially in a world where uh, consumer activity is going to get back on track, hopefully sooner rather than later. The, the economic data in the U.S. and around the world, save for Europe, of course, has been robust. Uh, and so, yes, this long term bullishness that Mike Wilson talks about. Uh, we, we're going to continue to, to aim in that direction, and, and we think that we will hit those targets next year. Right now, a lot of people are looking at credit versus stocks. Some people saying stocks hold the most potential for uh, possible upside. Others, I believe Morgan Stanley, seeing credit as a possible brighter spot going forward. What does the vaccine, excuse me, the vaccine news, it's so exciting, I can't get my words out, do to the prospect of credit outperforming, given the fact that the Fed will have less impetus to keep rates very low? Well, I mean, you know, so I, it's not clear to me just yet that the impetus from the Fed is is going to change anytime soon, right? We just went through the November FOMC meeting. We're going to have very shortly the December FOMC meeting. The Fed's going to update its dot plot. It's going to uh, include a couple of more charts in its uh, in its materials. Um, I highly doubt that the median 2023 dot is going to move up. The Fed is going to keep policy. Uh, at, at zero for probably the entirety of the SCP dot plot, at least an expectation. Um, and so I, I don't really think that there's less impetus necessarily, which is why the, the vaccine has the power to really drive risk assets higher, credit spreads tighter, the equity market higher, emerging market currency stronger. This is one of our key calls right now, is that we do think that emerging market currencies are going to perform extremely well against the dollar. We've been bearish on the dollar all year, and we continue <clears throat> to be bearish on the dollar. Uh, we think this liquidity has to find a home in higher yielding assets. U.S. corporate credit is obviously going to be one of those, Lisa. So when you talk about emerging markets credit, let's go there, emerging markets in general, because they are flying uh, with stocks and currencies at near record highs, currencies at the strongest uh, versus the dollar since 2018. How much of this story is China and how much of this story is uh, commodity producing nations, Latin America, that have been really beaten up and underperforming up until now? Well, you know, we, we, th we think that this, uh, you know, change in leadership in the United States uh, has, has the potential to help a wide variety of, of emerging markets, Mexico, for example, Russia. Um, and we're also looking at China. We, we, we do think that the currency there has further scope for uh, appreciation. We like to pair the yuan against the Japanese yen. We think a higher yuan against the yen is really the way to play it. But in general, we see this liquidity going to a wide variety of emerging markets, both in LATAM as well as in Asia. 
Uh, and and again, you know, this uh, this environment that we're going into, hopefully next year with a vaccine as, as soon as is practically and safely possible, that's going to have, uh, I think, a really positive impact on a variety of emerging market uh, currencies, credits and, and rates. Matt, great to catch up as always. What a morning for it. Good morning to you, sir. Send my regards to you and a team. Matt Hornback of Morgan Stanley. Thank you, sir. Part of it is math. The math of medicine, the statistics of medicine is profound. Mercedes Carnathon confronted this in the dreaded Stanford statistics program a few years ago, and she moved on to an esteemed academic career in epidemiology at Northwestern University of Chicago uh, this morning. I should say Evanston. I misspeak, of course. It's not Chicago. It's Evanston. Professor, wonderful to have you with us. If we talk about a 90% efficacy and Dr. Fauci and others say, hey, if we could only get to 75 percent efficacy, is it mission accomplished? You know, um, I am very heartened by the news, uh, particularly since we know that these trials were well designed. They were monitored very well and they involved a large number of people. And yes, 90 percent isn't the 100 percent that you'd like to hear. However, that is about as effective as any vaccine and perhaps slightly higher than what we see for effectiveness of the flu vaccine. So that the majority, the vast majority of cases of people who happen to be exposed were reduced when they had this vaccine. So I'm, I'm feeling very pleased about that. So uh, can we fast forward? How quickly, Dr. Carnathan, will we end up stopping this pandemic based on the data that we got today? Well, let's slow our brakes on that one. Unfortunately, this isn't going to be a magic shot that's going to reverse course from what we need to do to slow the spread because there's going to be a phased rollout of this vaccine. Its availability, even with the claims of Operation Warp Speed and involving the Army to help distribute it, we have to have a priority list of those who are protecting us, those who are helping us get along in society, and those who are educating us. So those are the essential worker categories who need to receive the vaccine first before it goes to the broader population. Professor, it's the distribution that I'm really interested in. Let's assume and let's hope this goes forward and it is conclusive. Then let's talk about distribution and the transition period between two governments that is set to take place over the next three months. How closely will Pfizer have to work with the government to make sure the people who need this get this and quickly? Yes, you know, I'm, I'm very pleased that uh, what I've heard from President-elect Joe Biden is that he has already appointed a coronavirus task force filled with professionals, with medical experts, with public health experts. And so I do believe he will be ready to launch this distribution plan. There is already a priority list of essential workers, nursing home residents, other people in um, congregate settings, including prisons, who are at the highest risk for capturing this. And so I do believe that there is a plan in place. There have been national academies who have contributed to this plan. And so I do think that the government is going to be ready to roll this out right away. Professor, when I look at immunological memory, it reminds me of the dreaded booster shots of my youth. John and Lisa have no idea what I'm talking about. But, folks, you'd have to go back and back and back to get booster shots on tetanus, on the bacterium diphtheria. But what about on vaccine, uh, on viruses? Do you just assume we're all going to have booster shots until the tots win? 
We may end up we may end up needing to have repeated shots. One thing that's not clear because we're so early on in this pandemic is how long one maintains those antibodies that you either get from contracting the illness or that you develop from a vaccine. We don't know how long those antibodies will last. We also don't know whether the coronavirus will adapt itself so that it can continue to be infectious. Now, that's one of the reasons why we have a flu vaccine every year, because it mutates, it changes year to year. We may be in that position, but at least we're at a strong starting point with the great vaccine for right now. I will say, uh, Tom, we've learned this morning that you are very scared of shots because first you're talking about holding your hand and then you're talking about the dreaded boosters, which for the record, we still get. Professor Carnathon, (laughs) just to wrap this up, in the near term, coming in this morning before this COVID uh, vaccine news was announced, the discussion really was around the worsening wave of COVID around the world and the potential for hundreds of thousands of potential additional deaths. Given where we are, given the fact that the vaccine news does not change the near term, as John has been talking about, what kind of winter months are we looking at? Right now, we're looking at a winter that's going to look very similar to our last spring here in America. Worldwide, they had their peaks earlier. I think we're going to see governments needing to step up and have rolling shutdowns, particularly of those businesses and industries where we see rapid spread. And it happens to be the types of places that you would frequent where you can't wear a mask. So when you're inside eating and drinking, and we're going to have to adhere to those policies. What I'm hopeful we can maintain this time is availability of our hospital systems. I'm hopeful that we won't become overwhelmed. However, with the rate that these cases are going up, our hospitalizations here in Illinois are matching what they were last spring. And that's a very scary prospect because we still have cardiovascular diseases, cancers, respiratory illnesses that we would need to still treat. Professor, what a timely interview. Thank you for your time this morning. Thank you very much. Right now to sort out some of the policy uh, drive forward, Jared Seberg joins us uh, with Cowan and their acclaimed Washington policy and analysis uh, team. Jared, so many different flows, so many different smaller elections, smaller issues as well. Sort out the debris. Who won the election? Oh, I think this is a, a clear victory for the moderate side of the Democratic Party. Uh, You had a coalition really get behind Joe Biden. Uh, You know, I think you had losses in the House that over time are going to be attributed to some of the socialist labeling that's uh, associated with some of the more radical members of the Democratic Party. And I think as we dissect this election, it's going to show that the path to national power is still through the more moderate side of the party and not through the most progressive side. Jared, you're going to have a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking for a very long time with respect to this race. Right now, though, we are moving forward and looking toward a pandemic that is worsening. What will the transition between the Trump administration and the Biden administration look like? And will it be different than what we have seen in the past? A hundred percent is going to be different because we have a, a GSA, which is an obscure government agency that normally nobody ever hears of. But GSA gets to officially start the transition. It's run by a Trump appointee. And at least as of early this morning, they still have not signaled that the transition is ready to start. And it may very well be until mid-December until that transition starts. So at a time when 
We are perhaps in the, the greatest part of the COVID-19 crisis with, with cases spiking each day, setting a new record. This transition may be four to five weeks behind where it should be. Jared, talk to me about the transition in a little bit more detail. Michael Lewis of Fifth Risk, he wrote beautifully in that, in a very short piece about how important it is. Can you communicate to our audience who might not be familiar with how much work goes into that transition, exactly what happens over the next three months? Well, you know, what's so interesting is uh, when you think about the transition from four years ago, there almost was no transition. It wasn't that uh, Obama's people were unwilling to engage. It's that Trump uh, didn't embrace the transition and they were very late in getting people in. And what you saw was it took almost a full year before Team Trump really got control of the regulatory agencies. Uh, Biden's people understand that you can't waste a year and they're going to want to get on this much more quickly. Uh, the fact that Gary Gensler, uh, who is a former Goldman Park partner, but also uh, ironically well respected by the progressive side of the Democratic parties, uh, he looks like he's going to lead the financial side of the transition. And I think that should be widely embraced. Uh, you know, he, he could have been Treasury Secretary if Hillary Clinton won. He's somebody who understands the markets. And as we always say, it's better to have people who understand our business leading the charge mm -hmm. uh, than people who don't. Jared, do you see the obligatory Republican cabinet appointee, I think, of William Cohen of years ago? Do you see something along that line? So, you know, I wish I could be that optimistic and to say that, uh, you know, Joe Biden's going to go back to the way it was where your initial cabinet appointees always included one person from the other party. Uh, you know, we're not we're not that hopeful. I think there's still so much animosity uh, that it would be difficult. You know, there only are a few names that could even come to mind, like a, a Mitt Romney. And I'm not sure he really would want to come inside an administration. Uh, in addition, you know, there's a lot of Democrats who are looking uh, to come back to Washington. And I think they're going to have a hard time giving up a prominent enough job uh, to a Republican. Jared, great to catch up. Really Appreciate good. your time Jared, this morning. Thank you, pleasure. sir. Jared Seaberg there, Cowan Senior Policy Analyst. Daniel Alpert is someone we can talk to about the American labor economy, but we can also talk about his classic book, The Age of Oversupply. And Dan Alpert, very simply here, it is two nations. We learned that on Election Day and Election Week. But it is one age of oversupply. How does the president-elect adapt to your age of oversupply? I think the first thing is that he has to recognize he was elected by a shift in what was effectively a bipolar uh, group of, of voters that, you know, elected Trump um, the, the first time. Uh, and these are voters who have uh, future prospects still dimmed. Uh, job quality has come down again during the Trump administration in terms of, and I'm talking about prior to COVID, in terms of the number of low-wage, low-hour jobs compared to higher-wage jobs or higher-income jobs. The the upshot there, of course, is that families still are looking for stable financial futures, uh, for the ability to save for retirement, to do all of the things that are that are needed. And those voters, some of some more of them. 
uh, voted for Biden than Trump this time, but they're on both sides. They're both Republicans and Democrats. We have breaking news along with Pfizer now. Add another vaccine to it. Novavax and their COVID vaccine candidate, it gets FDA fast-track designation. It seems to be a different stream of headlines than what we saw from Pfizer, but nevertheless, there it is, and we see an immediate lift in the market. SPX up 159 points, and the Dow, I can now go on 30,000 watch in the Dow, yeah. 29,844. Daniel Elpert, you and I have lived jump conditions. Is this a jump condition? Well, you know, here's a here's an interesting thing. Dow 30,000, I wrote a column on it um, before the crisis, well before the crisis. It's very interesting because right now we're seeing indices get to a level of multiples uh, that are, of course, historic, but also um, are, uh, you know, really only forecast on a restoration of the status quo. Right. So the question is, what, what's going to happen after we, we recognize the fact that this crisis has pushed us off trend? Uh, and, you know, that will in and, of, in and of itself be a big question mark for the equity markets going forward. There's also a question, uh, Dan, of how the CFOs, the CEOs of the world plan their strategy around a world that is in flux. I mean, the, the number of headlines this morning, we can't overemphasize. We came in thinking it was the election and now it's very much the vaccine. And possibly <laughs> yeah. early next year, we're going to be talking about fiscal support and maybe higher taxes for corporations. What's the main narrative you would tell corporate executives to pay attention to in terms of how to plan their strategy come the beginning of 2021? Yeah, aggregate demand, aggregate demand. That's really the bottom line here. And, you know, the jobs picture last week was very interesting, what was announced on Friday. We picked up 900,000 uh, private sector jobs, but 600,000 of those were low-wage, low-hour jobs who people were being restored to their work. Um, and then offset remained better quality. We lost 130,000 state local jobs and, of course, all those census workers. So the question is, how does that translate into demand in the economy? It, you know, keep in mind that a lot of those workers returning to their low-wage, low-hour jobs are actually making less than they were on the federal unemployment benefit supplement. Um, and so that actually translates. You have to actually look forward and, and calculate what this means in terms of restoration of aggregate demand, because that's what drives business. And against that, you have to look at the 750 or 800,000 weekly unemployment claims. There must be massive rotation going on of employer employees in and out of work in this economy. We won't know for several more weeks or months. But um, the, the, at the end of the day, the only thing that's important is how much demand there is, how much um, consumption there is in this economy. Well, Dan, when a C-suite individual, a CEO, the CFO, the COO will get around a table and talk about the labor market, the outlook for 21, demand, which you describe quite rightly, is the crucial issue here. As they anticipate demand, do you think the vaccine news of this morning makes them a little bit more constructive about 21 and maybe pushes them to hold off on additional firing and maybe encourages them to do a little bit of hiring? I think it's fabulous news. I think the, the, the faster the vaccine can be brought to bear, uh, the, the, the better off everyone is in terms of making forward projections. Um, you know, there are certain sectors in this economy that are going to take a long time to come back. Hospitality, uh, particularly, obviously, the restaurant industry and everybody else associated with the leisure and hospitality sector. You know, people are still going to be cautious. Companies, corporations are going to be very cautious about putting their people back on the road for travel. Vacation travel is still going to be impacted. And, of course, I note the huge rally 
in airlines and cruise stocks and all sorts of stuff today, yeah. and that's natural, right? Um, but but at the end of the day, you know, this is going to play out over a long period of time. It's going to take a while to get people vaccinated. Uh, but this news today and hopefully more good news going forward is going to be a huge uh, impetus to, to, as you say, uh, hold off on additional uh, expense control. I think that's the biggest challenge right now, Dan, for a lot of people. You look at the price action this morning, and of course we discount a better future. It looks like we might have a vaccine coming on the horizon. Not there yet, but it's encouraging news. But in the here and now, COVID cases still north of 100,000 daily in the United States. Restrictions from Massachusetts, then Utah, and maybe New Jersey a little bit later today, Dan. How much damage do you think we could do between now and then? The then being that optimistic point that we get that vaccine. I actually think you mapped it very, very well, because what we need right now is we need sufficient relief from Congress to ensure that we don't get a second real deep dip. Um, and there is everything. You're absolutely right. There's everything out there that points to a potential for another recessionary quarter. Um, however, uh, with with some sanity reintroduced to Washington after this election and obviously the market rallying in part, not just on the vaccine, but on the stability it perceives will come from uh, from from the Biden administration. Um, not with, you know, a lot of people say that government that, that markets are rallying on divided government. I don't really think that. I think I think uh, markets are really rallying on on stable government. Um, and uh, and I think the the bellicosity from from folks in the Republican Party that was obviously naturally associated with a uh, an election season will subside, and and people will do the right thing in terms of relief. So I'm hoping that what we need to do, which is exactly what you're, what you're going after here, is we have a period of uncertainty and, and probably weakness because of the spike in COVID. Can we actually plug that gap? And I think the prospects now are probably better than they were before. Dan, just to tie this all together, we have a lot more certainty with respect to what the administration may look like come the beginning of next year, as well as when we may have a vaccine. Given all of that and given your background, your vast background with restructurings, have we avoided the bankruptcy cycle that many people had expected? I I doubt that. I mean, only in comparison with the Great Recession. Obviously, there we had a lot of bailouts. We had very, very few bankruptcies, relatively speaking. But look at the large sector, you know, big, big, big companies that have been forced uh, to file in retail and other areas. I'm seeing more of that going forward. There's going to be, uh, you know, a significant uh, impetus for restructuring. And hopefully, look, the good thing about the bankruptcy law is that you can restructure businesses and keep them alive and, and have them be there when this is all behind us. And that's really the bottom line here, is that we absolutely must make sure that employers are still there, able to employ people at the end of this crisis, or at least when the vaccine uh, controls the virus. Um, and, and so if we, you know, that bankruptcy works very, very well for large businesses that are capable of restructuring. My concern is what are we doing with the SME sector? What are we doing with small and medium-sized businesses um, that, that really can't yeah. go into Chapter 11? Uh, and I think that's going to require additional attention. As I wrote in a column a couple of weeks ago, bail-ins, not bail-outs, uh, are probably the answer. Smart, Dan. Always smart. And great to catch up with you this morning. Dan Alpert there of Westwood Capital. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. 
before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 